All right, this week's episode of the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members, I interview William Kennedy, Bill Kennedy. Bill is the co-founder, CEO, and chief investment officer of Risk Bridge Advisors. He does a lot of work in our area. He lives up in the Northeast, extensive investment advisory, investment management experience. And he goes into what a nonprofit board needs to understand about investments. So please join me as I interview Bill Kennedy. Hey everybody, this is Michael Corley. Just wanted to let you know, we are now sending out a weekly, very brief newsletter, tips, tricks, pointers to nonprofit executives. That includes both board members and CEOs, executive directors. If you're interested in receiving this, please go to thecorleycompany.com forward slash newsletter, and you can sign up once again. That's thecorleycompany.com forward slash newsletter. Well, I'm excited today to interview Bill Kennedy. Bill is Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer for Risk Bridge, Risk Bridge Advisors. We actually got introduced by my first guest, first podcast guest, Susie Bowie, suggested that we connect. And so, Bill, welcome to the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members. Please share with the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got into this crazy business. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, really excited to, to, to be uh, talking about nonprofits and, and how investments uh, should be working for nonprofits. So uh, it was not a direct route to RiskBridge, I can tell you that much. Uh, I started my career back in the early 1990s at the DuPont Pension Fund. Uh, based in Wellington, Delaware, I was an asset allocation analyst to begin with. Then I became a specialist investing in the Japanese equity market. And the only thing you need to know about that was when I started investing in Japan, the Nikkei was at 28,000. And when I left, it was 8,200. And it, it wasn't because of me, but uh, I have a lot of scar tissue from that uh, decade or so of experience. Um DuPont was a great training ground, got my CFA there, but that opened up an opportunity for me to go to Wall Street. Uh, and I joined Solomon Brothers back in the uh, in 1996 in their Japanese business and uh, wound, wound up having the opportunity to work and live in Japan uh, with Solomon Brothers uh, in the late 90s. That went through a couple of mergers. It became Citigroup while I was there. And then I came back and ran all of the capital markets research for Citigroup uh, for several years from 2003 through 2008. Um, and I think all that background and experience is important because uh, it's steeped in uh, asset allocation theory, which we use today. It's steeped in a global view of the investment world, which we use today. And as a research professional, uh, one thing that we really emphasize at RiskBridge today is our uh, manager and market research capability, trying to help our clients, including our nonprofit endowment and foundations, think their way through uh, through risk. Um, I left uh, right before the uh, financial crisis, uh, left Citigroup. That was pure luck, not, not, uh, not, not by design necessarily and wound up in the insurance field, uh, working with uh, um, the Marsh McLennan companies, uh, giving strategic advice uh, to insurance companies about their assets. And I like to say everything I learned about risk, I learned uh, through that role because the, the business of insurance is all about pricing risk and, and mitigating risk. And uh, came back into the investment field uh, 
worked at a private bank as a chief investment officer. Um, this was at uh, Fuelpoint Private, which was based in Greenwich. We had about four and a half billion dollars of client assets at the time, uh, mostly ultra high net worth individuals, some institutions, and uh, really wanted to get back into uh, a focus on institutions. Uh, and that was the catalyst for forming RiskBridge. We, we started this company uh, right in the heart of the pandemic in uh, July of 2020. But uh, the whole notion behind RiskBridge was trying to take that 30 plus years of experience, uh, thinking about risk, thinking about uh, the complexities of the markets, uh, doing a lot of work with endowments and foundations and, and nonprofits along the way and bringing all of that together to uh, to, to try, try to give a, a better solution set uh, for those institutions that are doing such great work uh, for their clients, right? Whether it's trying to uh, provide community services or do some healthcare research, uh, educate another kid, or even have a, a good retirement, right? We think that's a worthy cause and we're excited to be, uh, to be working at RiskBridge to try to advance that cause for our clients. Oh. Bill, I think that's great. I, I appreciate that. What a, oh, I, I'm sure you have so many stories. Uh, hopefully you were shorting that yen, uh, the, the Nikkei market all that time. Well, I guess had you been, you, we wouldn't be talking today. You wouldn't have to work. So uh, <laughs> we appreciate the, the learning lesson. So let me ask you. So I always get, I'm always curious by this. Risk Bridge Advisors is a fiduciary. Why, what does that mean and why is that important to us in the nonprofit space? In the uh, most simplistic terms, uh, a fiduciary always, always puts the client's interest first. It's not about a commission. We don't accept commissions. It's not about, uh, are you maximizing your fee? It's not about trying to find other ways to generate revenue. All that is secondary or tertiary. The primary focus of the fiduciary is doing the right thing for the client this time and every time. And so what we, uh, having come through Wall Street and see how that industry uh, creates product uh, that's really quite good for the product manufacturer, but it's pretty lousy for the investor and especially uh, the nonprofit space, we just felt that uh, serving as a fiduciary, being on the same side of the table of our, as our clients, and always putting our client interests first and foremost uh, was uh, was important to us as individuals and as uh, business partners, and that's what uh, that's what being a fiduciary means. And so, it's just always putting the client interest first. And is there something you have to go through to be designated a fiduciary? Uh, we have no fiduciary certificates hanging on our wall. Um, but it's it's really the principles of your business, the way that you contractually engage with your clients, always ensuring that uh, their interests are are coming first and foremost. Um, for us, you know, one of the things that we are, uh, I'm a CFA, a chartered financial analyst. Um, that's no guarantee that you're going to be a fiduciary, but there's a lot of training and continuing education that comes along with that. Uh, that helps us to stay in front of what's required uh, to serve as a fiduciary. 
Yeah, and I asked that question on purpose and to the board members listening. Uh, you, you, you learn the tenor, you learn the culture of these investment advisors by asking them questions just such as this. And, and anybody can go to your website, Bill, and see that you really do take the fiduciary obligation quite responsibly. And I, I just encourage people, ask that question. You know, there may be groups that say they are, but you ask a few questions, you'll you'll figure out pretty quickly that they they really aren't. Michael, you're absolutely right. And the and the the key is where where's your revenue coming from, right? What's the source of of your top line revenue for your advisory business? Is it coming from commissions? Is it coming from selling other products? Uh, there are some firms that will treat their manager research as a profit center. Right, they'll take marketing dollars to have a manager on their platform. Not illegal. In fact, it's it's sanctioned. Right, it, it's okay according to the Securities and Exchange Commission. But is it ethical? And is that in your client's best interest? So the, I I've always said the best thing a board can do in their due diligence process is explain to us the top three sources of revenue, and that revenue sh should be for any fiduciary. Uh, it's only the fee for the advice that fiduciary is providing to that uh, to that endowment or foundation. Oh, very good advice. Thank you, Bill, for that. That is uh, worth its weight uh, to any board member. So let me ask you this. On the website, and I'm, I'm looking over here, you say when enterprise risk informs their portfolio risk. Well, help us understand a little bit the concept of risk, enterprise risk. As board members, how do we digest that and how should we look at risk? Yeah, so uh, this is probably where that experience in the insurance industry uh, starts to show itself. So uh, enterprise risk management, uh, the acronym for that is ERM. Uh, that's, an, that's an actual uh, study uh, and it's looking at risk holistically. So anytime you hear enterprise, enterprise risk, you're just thinking holistic risk. For a nonprofit, what can uh, what can generate enterprise risk? Think about what are all the sources of revenue for you as a nonprofit? Where, where's your revenue coming from? Are you writing grants? Are you taking uh, funds from the state or federal government? Are you purely focused on, uh, on donations from the private sector? Uh, sources of risk to your revenue uh, uh, is, is one element of enterprise risk that we try to help our boards think their way through, away from and aside from what's happening on the investment side. Uh, a second is, what about your your cost base, right? What are you spending on staff? Uh, are are you finding uh, facilities and technology and compliance and everything that's related to uh, the the expense of the nonprofit? That that's part of enterprise or holistic risk. And the third one is uh, really operational risk. Uh, are you subject to uh, cybersecurity threats as an organization? Um, what do you What do you do when uh, a global pandemic hits and your ability to serve your clients goes down, but the demand for your services goes through the roof? And we've seen that repeatedly with a number of nonprofits, as, as I'm sure you have as well, Michael. Uh, there's no better example of enterprise risk and its impact on a nonprofit than what happened in 2020 and, and 2021. Uh, you know, small liberal arts colleges, uh, they're, you know, 80% of their freshman class didn't show up. 
right? So that has all the, this interdependency to the revenue side and the expense side and the programming side or academic side of that institution. And therefore, what's it mean for your endowment? How should you think about the investment of those assets in preparation uh, to protect the organization through that sort of environment? So that's all we mean by enterprise risk. It's thinking about risk holistically and our, our little firm, Risk Bridge, that name was created to try to find a way to bridge that gap that exists between enterprise risk and investment risk. So, so depending on the enterprise risk that you identify, you work with your clients on, that will uh, dictate, prescribe, adjust how you invest their assets? Yeah, it, 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 it could. Uh, so for instance, if you're endowment assets are established for perpetuity and you're investing for a very, very long term and you're just trying to meet that uh, 4% payout or the 5% payout, whatever the case might be. Um, if you suddenly have a, a, a gap or a hole in your budget uh, because of some risk event taking place, um, how should you adjust the endowment to try to help fund that gap or bridge that gap, uh, if you will. That's that's one. The other is thinking about your uh, your endowments structure, right? You, do you, you can have full endowment accounts, but maybe you've got a quasi endowment account where uh, the, the funds can be not for, they can be invested for the long-term, but they're not necessarily funds earmarked for perpetuity, right? They may be for uh, a more specific purpose and then we do a lot of work with uh, boards, helping them think through that liquidity reserve account. Um, liquidity reserve accounts didn't really matter the last 15 years because interest rates were zero. So it was just cash, right? Didn't, didn't make any money. Well, lo and behold, here we are uh, 15 months into a Fed rate hike cycle and you can make five and five and a quarter percent today um, on, on cash. And so liquidity reserve accounts uh, become a little bit more important, but thinking of how to use that as a rainy day fund, uh, that comes into uh, the conversation about trying to think through all of those what ifs coming down the road. And so not only is it changing the way the endowment might be invested when the when bad things happen, but how do you prepare for that in advance and maybe think about your the structure of your funds, having a long-term perpetuity endowment fund, uh, a medium intermediate uh, fund to help cover some of your, your operating expenses, and then that liquidity reserve fund uh, to, to really meet some of the ongoing uh, operations of the organization. So quite a bit to think about, and, and I'm guessing in a perfect world, a board would call you early in the process they probably don't, because I, I know how we operate as board members. So, so when does a board call Bill Kennedy? What educate us a little bit? When should people reach out to you? Well, it it's interesting. Our experience has been, uh, and this goes back to before I started Riskbridge, right? Uh, even at the prior shop, but certainly since we've uh, started Riskbridge, we get called and. In, in, under three scenarios, I'll give you three case studies. Maybe that's a way to uh, to approach it. So um, the first case study, we've had some experiences where uh, institutions have been around for a few decades, 
but relatively small. And suddenly, for whatever reason, uh, they've received a bequest or there's been a large influx of uh, of capital for the endowment. And that board is looking to go from uh, making the decisions with their uh, eat, you know, purely index funds that you know, somebody on the board has probably helped them pull the trigger and put them together to trying to institutionalize the investment process. Right. So it's going from a small endowment to a, a, a larger endowment, but one that is going to require a little bit more governance, a little bit more belts and suspenders and the policies and procedures and everything that comes together uh, for that. So that's uh, that's one example. Um, secondly, we have a number of uh, opportunities where um, it's a sizable endowment already but they just haven't been, uh, they've sort of been underlooked and overserved by either their existing advisor or the OCIO community in general. And, and it may be because they are not a hundred million dollar endowment, right? It's something well north, well south of that. It's, it's not that large, but the complexity is just the same, whether you're a $10 million endowment or a hundred million dollar or a billion dollar endowment. And so we'll be brought in to try to professionalize and again, institutionalize uh, uh, some of their process. The last one would be uh, organizations that have a lot of uh, logistical complexity to what they do. This could be uh, healthcare foundations, um, could be uh, organizations dealing with uh, food insecurity, uh, or, or or trying to uh, provide lots of services that are high high frequency type services, and, and I'm thinking of food banks and and uh, feeding the underprivileged, right? That is three meals a day, seven days a week, um, and there's a lot of moving pieces in that where it's ripe for enterprise risk. It's ripe for holes uh, holistic risk that could impact. Uh, the organization could be through their vendor relationships, could be in their technology structure, uh, could be in how are they going to fund uh, additional services if they're trying to build out. And so we'll get called in to th help them think through uh, risk holistically. And uh, sometimes we'll do that on a consulting basis. We're, we're not doing the investment piece. We're just kind of focused on, on the risk piece. And then the the fourth example I'll, I'll give you is uh, we work a lot with really, really good executive directors and staff of nonprofits that are just looking for an outside entity to come in to help uh, board governance, partly around investments, but also what's it mean to be a good board member? And so we have a, uh, a series where we'll come in and just you know work with that board to think through how do you recruit? How do you recruit new board members and and try to increase the engagement that those members have in that organization? And uh, I know you you do very similar work and you, you've had a really strong impact uh, in the region there. Uh, and I, I think, you know, that's where we we are able to, you know, again, think about how to improve the board's delivery not only of their fiduciary responsibility, but just make them a stronger board uh, to, to, 
and impact, try to in, enhance the impact that they're having towards their mission, if that makes sense. It, well, it certainly does. That's music to my ears because I, I there, there aren't enough, there isn't enough uh, good governance. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's just a, you know, we, we've joked in previous podcasts that you really can't create a more dysfunctional system than the nonprofit, how it's set up, right? You've got a CEO, they got this board that rotates, it's unpaid, and they come and they go and the officers change every year and there's no continuity, but you're expected to have this level of governance, uh, you know, that's stellar. It's it's quite complex and challenging. So I'm glad y'all offer that service. Yeah, Michael, actually, if not to turn the table here on the, on the conversation, question for you is, uh, are you seeing a lot of uh, uh, board churn, meaning uh, membership retirement, uh, kind of post the pandemic era, because there was just so much stress on these organizations. And I'm just curious if it's something we've dealt with and, and we're trying to address, but I'm, uh, if you could just maybe educate me a little bit on what you've seen in terms of board turnover. Yeah, I think that's a fair question and statement. I've gotten more, I've received more requests recently to talk about recruiting, engaging prospective board members than I have in quite some time. So I think that's a fair statement that there's some churn going on and, and people really reconsidering whether or not they want to contribute their time in that fashion. So we've got some work to do. Yep. Absolutely. And from an investment standpoint, uh, every time that turnover happens, it's just an it's an opportunity to educate. Right. So it's it's an opportunity to bring them up to speed and having that strong investment governance in place at the institutional level uh, so that it there's some consistency as you go from generation to generation of board member. I think it's very important. Yeah, I think that's a very important statement. I'm glad there are organizations like yourself that can provide that continuity. That, that is really important. And, and related to that, Bill, what is the board's role or should be the board's role in investment management? I use that term broadly, I'm not defining it, but what should the board's role be? Well, we've always thought the the primary responsibility of the board is to ensure that the investment assets are structured to deliver on the long-term mission of the organization. So that's making sure that the risk and return are aligned. Uh, and we spend a lot of time working with the board. We assess their risk tolerance as individuals. We do surveys and we assess their risk tolerance as individuals and then their risk tolerance as, an, as a group, as a team. And then that helps to, to inform how much risk and what types of risk is suitable uh, for that organization's endowment uh, because it's matching it not only with the board's risk tolerance, uh, but tying it back to the long-term nature and the perpetuity uh, assets being invested into perpetuity. And uh, But at the end of the day, the board's primary role and responsibility as we see it uh, this is my opinion. Um, every board's different, but my opinion is it's to ensure that the assets are managed consistent with the mission of the organization to allow them to achieve their purpose. And so is this where the investment policy statement starts to take a meaning as an important? And could you talk a little bit about the IPS, its, its role, its importance, and how you approach it? Uh, absolutely. So uh, 
we do not think the IPS is a tick the box exercise. Uh, we view it as the heart of the investment process. So what is the IPS? It sets forth uh, both the policies and the procedures uh, of how the investment assets, the endowment assets should be managed, the roles and the responsibilities of the board, of the finance committee or the investment committee, and of the investment manager, if there is one, uh, and really trying to make sure everyone's very clear on what their purpose is. Then it really creates that framework to uh, help identify what's the long-term return objective, the realistic long-term return objective to achieve the organization's mission that gets laid out in the IPS. Uh, it's a form or a document that helps set the bar, the standard for how the board or the finance or investment committee are going to measure and man uh, monitor the performance of the investment manager like RiskBridge, right? So that, that should be the very clear articulation of this is how you're, we're going to define success in the investment program. Um, probably most important, Michael, it's a great communication vehicle, right? How does the uh, how does the board and the finance investment committee interact with one another? Who's responsible for calling the investment manager? Who does the investment manager go back to, right, on, on, at the investment committee? So all that is is to say that that investment policy is a living document, and it's really designed to help uh, ensure smooth communication and implementation of the endowment investment program. And this document is approved typically by the investment and our finance committee, I guess, investment committee, and then the full board, or how does that, how does that work? Uh, we've always suggested best practice is the finance or investment committee should uh, sign off on it, but take it to the board for full approval. And the reason for that, ultimately, look, we, we're a fiduciary, and part of what we get paid to do is lift the fiduciary burden off the board, but we never take the fiduciary burden away from the board. The, the board is always, always still responsible and still has that fiduciary duty. We're just being hired to make it a little bit easier on them. And so part of that duty is ensuring the policies and procedures are in place. And that's why the we always recommend that the board ratify that investment policy uh, document before it gets put into use. Well, I'm glad you said that, that the board never can abdicate its fiduciary responsibility. You help them honor that through through this document. And that we've done a few podcasts on board members who say, I don't know anything about investments. I don't know anything about finance. Usually it's the financial and the accounting side of things, but even investments, oh, I don't know. What are, when you hear that, because uh, I know you do, because I know that's why we were introduced. When you hear that, what, what, what do you say? How, how do you walk board members along the path to understanding or at least getting a little bit comfortable with the process? Yeah, it's it's all about education. And it's uh, number one, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, it's getting rid of the jargon, right? <laughs> Many times I don't understand it is, is shorthand for I have no idea what he or she just said. So I'm just <laughs> I'm just going to tune it out. Um, 
So part of it is, is education by getting rid of the jargon and just covering the very basics. Mm -hmm. Your question, what is a fiduciary? Making sure that's clearly uh, uh, understood by each board member. Uh, number two, what does diversification mean, right? Uh, it's this idea of you want, a, you want a little bit of stocks, you want a little bit of bonds, and the idea is sometimes stocks are going to go up and bonds are going to go down and vice versa, but you're always going to have some diversification in that portfolio, uh, which is prudent, right? It's a, it's a best practice uh, to have in place. And then I think secondly is uh, thinking through uh, what, what is asset allocation? How do you translate that into risk allocation, right? What does risk mean for an organization like that? So it's just trying to boil down some of those uh, basics of endowment management and asset allocation and investment management. One of the things that we preach um, and we think the academic research supports this statement, but we are of the belief that 80% of an endowment success is just getting the policy and the asset allocation right. 20% is some combination of the managers you select, the securities you select, the fees that you pay. They all matter, but they don't matter as much as getting that risk aligned right up front. And so we spend a lot of our time in the education process with the board, really not focusing on the manager selection because long-term that success is just being in the right asset class through the asset allocation and the risk allocation process. So that's, a, that's an important element of, of getting the board to achieving their fiduciary role. That's very, that last statement is very, very interesting. So when, when you look at boards, you're talking to them, what, what mistakes do they make, if that's a fair question? Or where do you see them maybe not taking full advantage of an opportunity just when you walk in and start speaking with them? Oh, boy, great question. Actually, I, I have to tell you, the, uh, the behavioral science behind a board is one of the most fascinating things. <laughs> it, it's a microcosm of the market. Right. The market's made up of millions of participants investing in millions of different securities. But at the end of the day, the market's always right. It's the weighing <laughs> mechanism that is going to tell you. And there's that exists on the board. Right. There, there are some board members that are. Uh, I don't understand investments. I'm not going to get involved to your previous question. And there's some board members that are masters of the universe when it comes to investing. You know, they, they, they've got all the answers. When you put those boards together, if they're well-constructed boards, um, you, you get this diversity of view and thought and, and concept. And so we find most of the time the boards are doing okay. But I will answer your question. Um, probably the single biggest uh, mistake we see from board members are uh, selling at the bottom and wanting to buy at the top. <laughs> Just human nature. Fear and greed many times outweigh everything else. And so part of our duty in, in, in protecting their fiduciary responsibility is helping understand why drawdown management, right? Things are gonna things are gonna work against you over time. That's not the time to panic, right? And so we always talk about prepare, protect, perform. That's that's kind of our punchline at Riskbridge. It's helping them prepare that there's a drawdown gonna coming. 
Don't know when it's going to happen. Don't know what's going to cause it. All we want to do is not fall as much as the market so that we can get back to break even. And by all means, don't sell right at, at the bottom because then you're destroying value. You're going against the mission uh, of the organization. That's number one. Um, my my favorite is I got a guy. <laughs> hey, Bill, I got a guy. He runs this really cool hedge fund. I'd like like you to take a look at it. And <laughs> um, we, you know, we're an outsourced CIO. So our our job and where what we specialize is going out and finding what we think are best of class managers to man to actually manage the equities and manage the fixed income. If the endowment's large enough, uh, we get them involved in our alternative funds that we select. But uh, sometimes we see a board get a little bit too active in the manager selection process. Um, and we can understand why, but I, I go back to that 80-20 rule. If the manager selection is only accounting for 20% of your success, I'd rather be having a, the, the academic debate, analytical debate about why asset allocation is what it is, as opposed to you know, pick this manager. Um, so we see that uh, uh, see that frequently, and I think the other is um, on a on a governance issue or governance perspective. A lot of times we don't see investment committee charters, right? That's just a simple document that says what's the role of the investment committee. That's an important uh, element that we think uh, we like to see. The investment policy statement um, usually is missing two important pieces. There's not a philosophy. What's our investment philosophy as an organization? And that could be very simple. Like we, we want to optimize returns with the least amount of risk. Or if the organization has some uh, considerations that you know, we don't want to invest in certain things, you know, that should show up in the, in the philosophy. But we rarely see a philosophy in an investment policy statement. And the thing we never see, and this is part of the reason we started this organization, we never see a crystal clear definition of risk. We always see, uh, we want to be prudent about risk, some squishy language about risk. We believe the long-term returns for any endowment is a function of how much risk you take and therefore Every investment policy that we create for any of our clients has a very specific volatility or risk target. And that's, we get managed to that target. And uh, it's this whole notion of risk gets treated like a byproduct. And I think that's a mistake for all investors, not just endowments and foundations. We see it with our insurance clients. We see it with our private wealth clients. Risk is not a byproduct. Risk is what you are trying to solve for. You optimize it, you embrace it because it's that risk that you're taking that's going to generate the return. And so uh, we just kind of take that that whole philosophy and flip it on its head. Oh, gosh, Bill. And it's so much there that we don't have time to get into, but I, I really like that wording that you just shared about, about risk. Let me ask you this as we're winding down last question. Is there anything... Anything else that we haven't covered that you want nonprofit board members to be aware of in your space? Yeah, I think, look, we're coming through uh, a very unique, unprecedented period of about 15 years where money has been free. 
This is a comment about monetary policy. It, it all goes back to the global financial crisis, right? In 2008 and 2009, and then how to prevent the, the global economy and certainly the US economy from, um, from falling off. And I, I raise this topic because it's very important that uh, now that money is no longer free, now that the federal funds rate is five, five and a quarter percent, it's really going to differentiate between the winners and the losers in the capital markets. Uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of mistakes get covered up when money is free. And so whether it's a manager or even an ETF where the, the role of indexation exists, the, the move towards index strategies for investing exists because there was free money. I think it's going to be very interesting in the next five to 10 years where selection of, not in every category, but selection of good active managers who do a good job of good risk management and they give you excess return because they have the ability to, to avoid the losers and, and apply, allocate and, and select the winners. I think that's going to be an important factor to consider because we've run into a lot of boards who've said, you know what, I'm just going to index it. Uh, it's cheap. It's easy. I'm going to follow the market. And I think that that, uh, methodology was really a good idea in the last 15 years. I don't know about the next 15 years. It, it's something that we're doing research on and we're helping boards think their way through whether they should uh, do more active management in their endowments. Oh boy, that's a whole discussion that can go on all day, couldn't it? Active versus passive management. I'm glad you, you teased everybody, which makes my next question even the most important perhaps of all this. How do people find out more about you, Bill, and RiskBridge? Uh, advisors, which, what's, how do we, how, where do they go to learn more? Absolutely. So uh, probably the best way you can find us uh, at our website, that's www.riskbridgeadvisors.com. Uh, if you have an interest, we publish a, a regular uh, newsletter, a market newsletter, uh, talking about capital markets. Sometimes we talk about board and uh, fiduciary issues. But uh, you can uh, sign up for that either on the website or uh, just email us at info at riskbridgeadvisors.com. We'll get you on that distribution list. That's a, uh, that's a free service. We just like to share that with our network and love to see that network grow. So those, those are the two easiest ways. Bill Kennedy, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Riskbridge Advisors. I can't thank you enough for coming on today and sharing wisdom. And I know the board members are better off because of it. So Bill, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you. Oh, what a great discussion with Bill Kennedy. Now this segment recapping with Reed. Reed, you listened to the conversation. What three things stuck out for you? So the first thing that stuck out to me was when discussing the board's role in investment management. And the board's role is to ensure the invested assets are structured to deliver on the long-term mission of the organization. Oh, that's good. It forces the board to think long term. And that's really what the investments ought to do. That's that's a really good point, Reed. What do you have for number two? When we were discussing the investment policy statement, Bill said that it sets the policy and procedure of how the investment assets should be managed. It's a document that helps set the bar with how the board is going to measure and monitor the performance of the investment manager. Yeah, really, it's almost a bylaw. It's like the bylaws, but in this case, it's for the investment committee and the investments of the organization. And number three. Based on research that they have conducted, 
80, about 80% 80 of an endowment success is getting the policy and asset allocation correct and nothing, and 20% of it is about the actual investment manager's performance. Oh boy, and that is one provocative statement, but I'm sure Bill can back it with, with some data. That is really, really important for all you board members out there that's on the investment committee that really getting all of that in place and it's less about the manager that you have. Very, very interesting. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, recapping with Reed on this episode of the I-501CU, the podcast for nonprofit board members. We'll see you next week.